uh, you may be seated. I know for the past many weeks we've had readers. We have different passages today, uh, so I'll be your reader. I'm very sorry about that. I will say it's glad to have Matt back from his head cold because last week is an, an anomaly. We say it was great. Yeah, well, no, no. This is, you know, I just I feel things feel better now. Uh, all is right with the world. I want to thank you guys for joining us this morning at Genesis Community Church. I'm Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. It is a joy. Very glad to be with you. If you have not met me and you want to, you can generally find me somewhere between here and the donuts after the service. Um, and I would love to meet you and to see what brought you here to the church. Uh, we are finishing a series. I'm saying we're finishing it because I gave it 10 weeks and our community groups have 10 weeks of things to discuss with it. It's, it's a series on community life as a church, and for the next two weeks after this one, we'll do a little postscript. We'll just kind of do two, two connected conversations about church life. Uh, I, as I tell people, we were at our elder retreat uh, Thursday into Friday, and I said ecclesiology is my favorite ology. I love uh, talking about, studying, discussing the church. It really matters to me. So ecclesiology is the study of the church, and that is by far my favorite subject of theology uh, in the world. And it's a little peculiar uh, because most people are like, no, it's like it's got to be Trinitarianism. I'm like, that's hard. Um, so ecclesiology I roll with because it affects what you see and experience here. Of course, all those do as well. But uh, we'll take two tangential conversations because as we've gone through all of this, we've never really discussed this time, the church, being together and what it means and being a part of a local community and, and what, is, what it's got to have for, for a group of believers being together and how does that fit into what he's doing and what he has, is building and has been building? And so I'll start there. Uh, we show up on Sunday. You, know, you just think of the, the things that you do. We show up on Sunday or we might say get into a community group. Many of you are in community groups or maybe you're in a discipleship group. You might hear us say D groups. And so you're in those. And uh, other times people just go, you know, I, I'll come sometimes. I won't come other times. That's fine, you know. <clears throat> Uh, you know, we show up at the grocery store more than we show up with our church family, and um, that happens. It appears, as, we, as we've just kind of gone through the past nine Sundays, if we were just to survey one another and say, do you think it's important for believers to be together? I think, I think most of us, having heard what we've heard, let's assume we've been around for all nine, we go, yeah, that seems important. It seems important. I think we can give attention to the idea that it's important for us to be together. And yet at the same time, we really don't commit to one another very strongly. Uh, we, we don't actually, you know, I, I mean, I'll say it this way. And I'm, I have no one in mind. We don't do a good job of caring about each other, caring for each other, being interested in each other. We, we don't commit to one another. We're not invested in one another. So we hear all these things, and we can kind of check a box and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all really, really important. And then, you know, you'll show up maybe to a worship service. Maybe if you haven't experienced this yet, just give it time. It seems like it always happens. And you might go, hey, where's so-and-so? I haven't seen them for a while. I go, oh, they changed churches. And you're like, all right. You know, like, like, they changed churches. They, they've gone somewhere else now. And so you go, Okay. Uh, you know, I moved on to another church, found another church, and I didn't even know. I didn't, I didn't know they were gone. You might have been that person. You might have had that happen to you. I've been that person where you've just kind of ghosted a church, and then you just show up at another one and kind of go on with your life. 
And all of those just communicate like, do we really care about the things that we hear? Do we really, are we really interested as, a, as people of God who have been saved by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we really interested in being together and committing to one another? And so all of that, all of that kind of rolls around. And, and then we might, you know, I remember reading this uh, popular blogger. It was probably now eight years ago. Maybe I'll just say eight years ago. That feels right. Feels right. And his comment was that he had just kind of, he doesn't need church anymore. It's like, like it's not that important, like, like being together. I, like I'm connected to the global body of Christ. And so being with people and committed to people in community is no longer as important to me because I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm connected to people all the time. And I'm, I'm in you know, conferences or I'm teaching. And so you know, I'm just kind of, the church doesn't do it for me. It just, these people, they just don't do it for me. I thought that was funny. But at the same time, I, I, I'll say it in this way, kind of in my flesh, I get it. I get it. You know, like, you probably sometimes enjoy being fishing more right now than you would enjoy being here. Or you enjoy, you know, kind of working. Maybe you just like working through a Sunday morning and, and you, don't, you like that. And so you just go, well, this is showing up and, you know, having somebody talk to me. And singing songs, that doesn't really do it for me. I'm not saying that perspective is the best perspective to have, but I go, okay. Okay, I understand some part of that, our weird brains that would check that off and go, does this feel that necessary? Or why, why all these things anyways? Why do all these things? Why care for one another? Why be invested? Why be vulnerable? Why share? You know, what is God doing with all of this? And I think sometimes small expectations on what God is doing lead to small commitments from us. When, when we're not seeing the full picture of what God is working out, at least as he has revealed it, right? Like he's working out, his ways are not our ways. Uh, it, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, the revealed things belong to us and our children. That's what uh, they're saying in Deuteronomy, so that we may follow all the words of God's law. So there are things God does that, that we don't know or will not comprehend, but he's revealed much to us. And so maybe we don't see the whole picture. Maybe we can't see why it matters. And we'll take some time today and, and go, where is this going? Where is this going? You know, it's like you don't, you don't want to get into a car and have that car just be driving. And, you know, and then three hours in you go, hey, where are we headed? Like, is this, is, are we going anywhere right now? And so we're going to see where the destination of this community life really is. But to think about where we have been, God created a world and everything in it, and he put male and female, he created, to be in the garden, to tend to it, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, to fill the earth with his image. Reflections of him in all the earth. But as you know... We get two chapters of the book of Genesis where things are going well, and then we get everything else. We get two chapters at the end, Revelation 20, 21, where we also get to see things going well. And we're living in between. And so we see this world, we read about it, we go, okay, so God gave this command, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, but we've seen sin 
affect it. Everything that we do, however we interact, it just seems to be there. So much so that we kind of think very little of it, right? We kind of go, oh, that's just, you know, that's just there. That's just our neighbor's sin, and he just kind of does whatever he wants, and we, we just let it exist. And so we are very, I would say, accustomed to sin just existing in our life, in our relationships, and kind of what we do. We're rather unconcerned about it at times, but God is very concerned about it. And so at the fullness of time, God sent his son into this world to die for our sin. Not for his sin, but for our sin. And in so doing, he is beginning to undo the things that we've done. He's beginning to redeem the things that we've done. And what I mean by begin is he, we haven't, he hasn't done it all. It's not all done. It's all promised. It's all assured, but it's not all done. We haven't realized it. And so we looked at Ephesians and saw how, how does God bring us to him and us to one another? How does he build a new, a new body, a new temple, a new place where he resides? And so we get to see through the work of Jesus, our faith in him, that he's brought us together as a new people. And we went to Peter, and Peter talking about how we're living stones being built up. We spoke of how love is the greatest testimony. By this, all the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we looked at Romans 12, and what does it mean to love one another? How does does love look? How does love look? We spoke about how difficult it is to be vulnerable because our flesh is so self-protective and self-glorifying that it doesn't want to demonstrate weakness. It doesn't want to demonstrate need. And so we hide, even in community, even as believers, even as believers who are indwelled by God's Spirit, there's still this part of us that wants to act as if all things are fine. And they're not fine. We don't confess sin. We don't share what's going on. We don't share burdens. We don't ask for people to pray for real, tangible things very often. Kind of march through life, everything's okay, we're good. And yet, at the same time as we feel that way, we go, I don't really want to be known in community. We saw that God actually brings us together in part so that we can be a comfort to one another, especially in suffering. If we belong to Jesus, suffering is a part of life. And he provides a better understanding on what it means to go through pain as we walk in the path of obedience. And that we can be that comfort for one another. And it's not always in our words, is it? Sometimes it's just in our presence. We can just be present with one another. and We've been there before. We've understood it. We've experienced it. And so we can be there. And God comforts us in our afflictions so that we can be a comfort for others. They go, man, I, I would really like some of that comfort right now. What's the, where's the comfort aisle in this church? You know, do I, have to, do I have to request it? Comfort, please. And then along with that, we looked at the early church again and saw how generous they were, not just amongst one another, but generous even beyond their walls. They were generous to one another, and they were generous to support the work of ministry as the gospel expanded beyond And so we look at all of this, and we might go, okay, that's all cool. That's great. Where's it going? Where's it going? 
do we just do this in perpetuity? Like, is this just, is this just what we do? We're just nice to each other and serve each other and are kind to each other forever? Like, does it, what is the end game, right? Not like the Avengers end game, but that was really good. But like, where's the end game? This one's better, I promise. And so, what we need to remember is this. And it actually helps us if we think about the first Sunday again. That God created male and female to image him in all the world. Like, that's what we need to remember. And so, what is God doing? Where is this headed? It's headed to a, actually a better version of that. A better version of that. And here's why I mean it's a better version of what we originally saw. is because clearly, in the original version of what we saw, sin was a possibility. Sin was a possibility, or else Genesis 3 would not have happened. And so, where is God moving this entire endeavor? He is moving this to a place where everybody worships him who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, a world full of people worshiping him and with him forever, where sin is not a possibility. Where sin is not a reality. And so what we get is the better version of what has originally been created. That's what we get. Between now and then, what do we do? First, how do we know it's going to get there? And what do we do in the meantime? And so we're going to be in three pastures today. One in Matthew, two in Revelation. One in Matthew and two in Revelation. And what we're going to see in Matthew is what we do now. In Revelation, we're going to see the end of the age and, and the real all eternity part. Okay, So we're going to see what we do now, end of the age, and then forever. If you're at Genesis, you can't go very long without me speaking about Matthew chapter 28. Why? Because it seems important that the Messiah, before his ascension, when he gives the parting instructions, that that should be something his people listen to. And so this is what we read. Jesus has resurrected, but he has yet to ascend. He gathers his disciples to him. The disciples come at that point in time. It's no longer 12, it's 11. Remember, Judas didn't go too well. If you're in a reading plan with it right now, we're kind of at the end of the gospel narratives. We've been reading the gospels together. And so if you're in our reading plan, you're getting to the end. And you know, some, some gospel writers take longer to get there than others. And so you might have finished one, and now you're, you're, now, now you're finishing it in John and kind of moving on because John gives a little interesting postscript with Peter. And we get to see Jesus making breakfast and all that stuff goes on in John. But in Matthew, Matthew ends with Jesus' ascension. It ends with his final words. Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has perfectly fulfilled the desires and will of his Father. And we are moving on in God's plan to bring salvation to the world. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You've heard this before. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go is a command, make disciples is a command. I've said before, sometimes people will go, no, it means as you're going. It doesn't mean as you're going. It means go make disciples of all nations. It's not like, a, well, just as you kind of move along, just make disciples. No, it has a command and an end game. It has a destination. So go make disciples of all nations. Why? Because all authority has been given to Jesus. So now he's going, now that I have all authority, here's where we're going with this. Go make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so our aim now as brothers and sisters in Christ is to make disciples of all nations. That's the, the destination is the world. The destination is the world. And making disciples has those two elements. This is, where, this is how, if you're ever in our member class, right, this is like the preview of the member class. Uh, the, the, what, what I'll talk about is, is you see really two things connected to the idea of making disciples of all nations. The first is baptizing them, their identification with the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the second idea is teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Now, the work of baptism is interesting because we might look at that and go, oh, yeah, so we just go baptize people and then, and then, we, and then we teach them and train them. And, and, yes, I get why we would say that, but I think one, one thing that we neglect in that is that the work of getting to baptize somebody is actually the work of evangelism. That as the gospel is proclaimed, people identify with the Lord Jesus. They play, place faith in the Lord Jesus and they pursue him in baptism. That baptism is that initial identification. Now think about it. Go back to where Matthew is. Matthew's talking to or, or, or illustrating Jesus speaking with the 11. Now there are others who believed. There are others who followed. There's others who knew. But the, the 11 disciples now are there. And so what do you, there isn't this large posse of people who are ready to go storm the world. right? It's not, it's, there's not a million followers of Jesus. So inherent within that idea of baptizing them as a part of making disciples, the way of making disciples includes the proclamation so that they might identify with the Lord Jesus. You actually then, as you read the book of Acts, see that. Gospel proclaimed, people baptized, gospel proclaimed, people baptized. Like that's, that's what you begin to see is that kind of twofold movement of proclamation, faith, and baptism. That's the move that you see. And so we get to see through Acts that unfolding of how that begins. Proclaim, Faith in Christ, identified with Jesus through baptism. And then he says, teaching them to observe or obey all that he has commanded. And that's that ongoing work of disciple making that you never really outgrow. You never really outgrow, unless you're like the rich young ruler. If you're the rich young ruler, you outgrow it because you go, oh yeah, I do all that. I do all that. And then Jesus goes, well, what about this? And why don't, mm, uh, well... I don't do that, right? Is that, is that if we ever think we've, uh, we've kind of conquered obedience, then we are probably on the wrong side of what obedience is. Just guessing. If you ever think, I've got it, I'm on, I've got it licked, I'm obedient to everything. So, so that's where we see that ongoing work. So we place our faith, we identify with the Lord Jesus, his person, his work, we have faith in him, we are saved. Now we are learning how to follow him in all that we do. And then, then again, that's why we need one another. Because there's always somebody who's be, needing to be taught. There's always you needing to be taught. And so you never really outgrow this, do you? You never really outgrow the need to share Christ with people, the need to have other people invest in you, and the need for you to invest in other people. Never, you, like, I try to say, like, that's the compounding effect of just being with people, being in community, sharing Jesus, getting around his word, discussing it. Like, there's no real magic formula. 
You could go to the conference on how to make your church bigger. You could, you could tell the stories or whatever. Go, oh, yeah, well, this church does it this way. This church does it that way. Like, that's great. I'm glad. You know, we're just going to call people to Jesus. We're going to invest in them. We're going to ask people to invest in us and continue to grow in his likeness because that's, that's what we do. We never tire of it because if we are being faithful in the work of proclamation and our end game is the nations, mind you, it's not just spring, it's the nations, then there's always work to be done. There's always work to be done. There's nations to be praying for. There's missionaries to support. There's better understanding in our own life and our own obedience and what it means to follow after Christ, to make disciples of all nations, to be concerned about the gospel amongst the poor in places that have not heard of the name of the Lord Jesus in which so much of our world's population lives in. I mean, you can't spit in Spring, Texas without finding somebody who goes to church or used to go to church or knows someone who goes to church. But there are places in the world where you could go hundreds of miles and not find one person who has heard the name of Jesus. Who doesn't know who he is, doesn't know his work. Where, the, where, where those who, who proclaim and represent him might be one for a million one Christian for a million people who have not heard. And I think, like, the Great Commission is for the church. It's for us to hear that and go, you know what? We can't be just concerned about spring. We can't be just concerned about what's going on here. We can't be just concerned, right, about our church getting cooler and things getting hipper and us being happier. Like, we want to continue to follow after the Lord, but as we continue to follow after the Lord, we should be... Oh, gosh, what have got to say? Ruggedly concerned? I don't even have the right word for it. We should be passionately concerned, interested in, praying for, longing for the name of Jesus to be proclaimed in the places he has not been proclaimed. That's what we long for. We're in budgeting season as a church, and so I was like, hey, you know what I want to, you know, it's like it's conferences. So you're, what do I want to go to? I want to go for this conference or that conference. And there's like all the cool conferences that people go to, Right? Those are fun and all. He's like, oh, yeah, you want to go to this? You get your buddies together, you go to conference. I've done that before, and it's fun. But I was talking to John. I was like, John, I really think we should go to a missiology conference. Like, I think, I think that we should, like, we should give attention to the work. You know, the missiology conference tickets are like 75 bucks, right? Like, at the, at the bigger ones, it's like $200 to go to that. But the missiology is 75 bucks. We're like, please come to our conference. Why? Because, honestly, and I, and, and, and I don't mean this for any single believer in this room, but... To talk to people about the gospel amongst the nations, it's honestly something we often tune out on. It's something we just kind of go, that's nice. I mean, that, yeah, we want to see that. But, but why is it hard for us? Because it's not where we live. Right? It's not where we live. You're like, I'm just trying to get my kids to like me. That's all I really, I just want my kids to like me, like, you know, and get along with my spouse. Like, if I could do those two things, I'd feel, honestly, like I'm crushing this Jesus thing, like I'm, I'm doing okay. And so because it's not where we live, I think we often forget about it, but you cannot read the New Testament without reading that the New Testament is essentially a missionary document. Right? It is, it is gospel writers writing to people so that they might believe in Jesus. It is apostles writing to churches so that they might walk better with Jesus and understand him better. And as those people are going out, they're often writing like Paul is to churches that he helped to start and telling them to keep after it. And then you read like the book of Romans and what's Paul doing? He's like, 
but I gotta go to places he's not been proclaimed. I'm not interested in going to places where people know him. I have no reason to go to the church over here, the church over there. If there's a church there, I'm good. I'll go find the place where there is no church. And so we don't realize that the entire New Testament is built on this reality that Jesus' name must be proclaimed everywhere. Like like that, that we should not settle for just being a cool church, just being a happy church, just li- not even just liking our church, but that the destination is a world full of people worshiping the risen Lord Jesus. And we have the comfort of Jesus in that phrase, I'm with you always. I'm with you always, which means that Jesus would never send us to a place that he has not been himself. He doesn't go, well, that corner of the map I forgot about. I didn't know that was there. He doesn't do that. And so we have the, our aim now, making disciples of all nations. That's the task in which we do. And we do this together because disciple-making is not a solo endeavor. It's not a solo endeavor. Read the book of Acts. Like the, these people don't go out by themselves. They don't go teach and proclaim by themselves. They don't go plant churches by themselves. They go together. And they even sometimes don't like one another. Second missionary journey, Paul was not happy with Barnabas. Barnabas was not happy with Paul. They did not have an agreement on what to do with Mark, who left them in the first missionary journey. I mean, there is some drama, high drama, right? Like better than middle school drama, better than high school drama. Like there is some serious drama in the book of Acts over how to accomplish what God has put before the church. And at the same time, what ends up happening, even though they end up disagreeing, they each take somebody along and keep going. (laughs) They each take somebody along and they keep going and they keep doing it. I've shared before with you, I think I was sharing it this week at class, but here's one of the the best and worst lessons I've ever learned. I mean, we've talked about discipleship. I've shared this story before, but I wanted to go to a conference, right? Because you go to conferences. That's a cool thing. It's like, you know, what is, what is continuing ed if not being able to go somewhere? So I go, or I want to go, and I was by my boss slash mentor slash friend. He's, I, don't, I guess he's a friend now, a colleague, whatever you call him. And he says, who are you bringing? Yeah, you can go to that, but who are you bringing? Uh, nobody. I'm trying to get away from my church right now. I'm not trying to hang out with him longer and in the same hotel room and have every meal with him. But this is the opposite of what it seems like I want to be doing right now. And so I was rather frustrated, right? Because somebody's like, well, who are you bringing? I'm not bringing anybody. I don't want to bring anybody. What do you mean, who am I bringing? You're not even going. Who are you bringing, right? Like, you just get frustrated. But what was really happening is somebody was challenging my desire to be alone. They were challenging my desire to try and go at this alone. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to get filled up. And he's like, no, a couple things happen, right? If you don't share that experience with somebody, then you're trying to convince everybody else that was valuable when you get back. That's no good. Because now it's only your experience. And you're trying to convince everybody else that it should be their experience or their interest or their concern. And so there's nobody else to be interested in it with you. Secondly, you should never, as a believer, do, do something by yourself. If you can bring somebody along with you, then you bring somebody along with you. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I mean, it's like, I don't. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. People are messy. They're annoying. I'm annoying. You're annoying, right? Like, I don't want to do that. I just want to go do something by myself for a little while, come back and tell you it was fine, give the report, move on, right? 
but it was true. And some of the truest, simplest disciple-making advice that I'd ever received. If you're going to do something and you can bring somebody else along, bring somebody else along. Like, this is why, you know, you spend all this money to go to seminary, then the lesson you learned when you were on staff somewhere is the one you're like, oh, shoot, that one's better. You go to the seminary to ask for a refund. They go, sorry. So that's our aim now. But Jesus says that phrase, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. We're going to look at two passages in the book of Revelation. I was a little nervous about looking into the book of Revelation because, wow, right? We go through this thing together and we might not know where we land. Because Revelation is interpreted differently in different ways by different people. They go, well, I think, right, like, it, 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 some of it's based upon how you read Old Testament prophecy, so how do you read prophecy, and how does that relate to what we're seeing in Revelation? And even your whole hermeneutic connects to how do you engage the book of Revelation. So <clears throat> I'm talking to my friends. My friends have different interpretation, uh, interpretive ideas on the book. And I said, let's just start with one. We have an end-of-the-age passage that is before the new heaven and the new earth. Right? So new heaven and new earth is like the super end. Right? That's like when it's all said and done. So like, that's, one, that's, that's, a, that's one we're going to next in Revelation 21. But before that, we have this kind of post, uh, like, like people who have come out of tribulation in Revelation chapter 7. And they died for their faith. They died for their faith. And then we get to see this glimpse in Revelation chapter 7. If you just look with me, in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, we're going to see, at the end of the age, nations praising a risen Lord Jesus. That's what we see, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, after these 144,000 are sealed, I, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know what I see in that? Hey, the Great Commission happened. It hasn't happened yet, but it's gonna, like, we get to all nations worshiping Jesus. We get there. But what is it, honestly, what does it take? It takes the sovereignty of God. It takes the power of God and the might of God and the strength of God, moving it to that end because quite often, I mean, you think about it, I feel like we should have had this done by now, but we don't because we're crazy people who are concerned about ourselves. And so it really does take the intervention of the Lord to get to a place where the world goes, oh, him. But what we get in Revelation 7 is this glimpse of believers Likely those who have died during tribulation who are worshiping. And it highlights, John highlights here, from every tribe, tongue, language, everyone is there and they are worshiping Jesus saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love that. But this is so hard. It's hard for you and it's hard for me because we so often live moment by moment, even decade by decade. We don't live era by era, epoch by epoch. That's not the way that we live. We don't think like that. We don't, we don't live like that. But what we have here is that God, in his grace toward us, revealing to us where it's going to go. Why? So that we can be confident as we are going. Right? We go, we make disciples of all nations, and so as we live this out... We get to look at Revelation and go, oh, this, this does get there. It does get there. 
It moves to this spot. Oh, that's good, because I tell you what, I didn't think it was going to get there. You ever watched a, whatever sporting event, I don't care what it is, like you just pick, pick the one you like or don't like, just pick the one you don't like too, that's fine. And maybe you've been caught up in it, maybe it's the one you played, maybe it's the one you saw, I don't know what it was, you know, pick it. And you've been kind of in the moment, maybe it's your team and your team's behind and you're panicking, you're panicking. Because there's five seconds left and you, you just go, I don't know what's going to happen here or it's the bottom of the ninth and blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is, right? You're just kind of like, this is over. You're ready to pack up and go home. You're just not sure what's going to go on. Right? And then all of a sudden, be it Hail Mary or Grand Slam, I don't care. Again, whatever the image is, your team wins in the end. Now, having, if you had known that outcome while you were there in the last seconds of the game, Panicking, had you known the outcome before, do you think you might have handled it a little differently? Probably so. Now, sometimes you go, well, hold on, it's really fun. To, I get it, right? Yeah, it's fun to kind of not know what's going to happen. I get that. Not when it comes to life and salvation and matters of eternity. Maybe for a game, sure, that's fun. But wouldn't you be living differently if you knew where something was headed? You would be going, I don't know what's going to happen here. You'd go, watch this. Watch what God does. Watch how God moves. And so knowing where it is headed, even though we have Jesus speaking to his disciples in a time and a place, we have John then showing us that it gets there. How it moves from here to there is bananas. Because again, I know you and you know me, and we don't seem to follow instructions very well. We might have had the Great Commission memorized a long time ago. And still aren't that concerned in supporting missionaries who are going to the unreached. We might go, yeah, I know what this says, but we've still never asked somebody, would you be willing to walk with me through the word and help instruct me in what's going on here and teach me, what's, like, teach me how I could be more faithful in this area? We likely have never grabbed other people and said, let's go through the scriptures together. Let's engage with the scriptures together and read and see and discuss. And so we see what it says, but very often we don't do what it says. And yet even though we're a group of people who are navel-gazing very often, where do we know it's going? It's going where Jesus said it's going to go. Why? Because it's about him. And really, he's more concerned about it moving to that end than we would even be. I can't outpassion the Lord Jesus for his glory amongst the nations. But I can participate in it. I can participate in it. I can be active in investing in other brothers, other sisters. I can be in prayer for those. I can be asking them to invest in me. Never stop learning about how to follow after him with more obedience. When you meet somebody from another nation or another world or you meet a missionary who's going amongst the nations and you can just go, tell me about this. How, do you, like, how can I better participate in what's going on? Because we can always grow in how we obey the Lord and how we fulfill the great commission of making disciples of all nations. We can continue to grow in this. And we can do it with the hope of what is to come. And so we see this end of age, all nations praising a risen Lord Jesus, but that actually isn't where it ends. <clears throat> because the end hasn't fully come. But what we get in Revelation 21 is that snapshot of the all eternity part. The new heaven and the new earth. And what we see 
In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, it's this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Put this together. Where did we begin? Ten weeks ago. Where did we begin? A garden. That garden had people in it, and that people were given a task to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But we saw very quickly that that task was marred by sin and disobedience and a desire to pursue our own ways and our own end. And so that task was not forever marred, but it was marred by us. So what does God do? God intervenes. God intervenes. And he sets it back on the track that it needs for it to be accomplished. And he actually, we see the intervention multiple times. I just jumped to the Lord Jesus, but the intervention in the preservation of a family in Noah and the intervention of saving Abram and his family so that they might be a nation through which the whole world will be blessed, that's a part of God's intervention. And even after their exile and they return, there's this hopeful expectation that God is going to come. And then we see the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, you have Simeon and Anna from the tribe of Asher who are longing for the coming of the Messiah into this world. They're looking for the coming of the Messiah into this world. And so we see there the intervention of God to make men and women right with him. And then as Jesus ascends, and some people are going, I'm not sure this is how it was supposed to happen. What does he do? But he sends the Spirit, right, and gives them the commission to go into all the world so the whole world has an opportunity to know and then as we get to Revelation 21 what do we get we get how it was supposed to be all along we get what has still yet to happen but was always meant to be God with his people forever in a new heaven and a new earth where death is no more, pain is no more, sin is no more. And so I say, the story ends like it started, but better. Was God dwelling with his people as we read in the garden? Yes. Now he's dwelling with them in a city, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. But it's not only that, there are more people there. The world that was to reflect him, image him, proclaim him, that world now exists and so we see that, we see where we are, and I'm, I would bet if you're like me in any way, which is sometimes a tall order, I'm odd, you get those moments where you go, why do I do this thing? Why do I do, why do I, why, like, you just kind of feel like you're playing the church game. Like, you show up on Sunday, you listen to a sermon, you probably listen to hundreds and hundreds in your life if you've grown up in this thing, right? Like, so it's what you know, it's what you do. You sing the songs, you kind of do your stuff, you move on with life. Like, Why? 
Why do that? Why? Because even as we gather here, we begin, to, it's, like, it's like looking into something that you can't fully see. We get to participate in worshiping a risen Lord. It is a glimpse, a glimpse, and it is so small of a glimpse, marred by our sin, our distraction, our exhaustion, the fight that we had on the way here. But we get to gather here and remember the work of Jesus for us. We get to remind ourselves that he is concerned about the entire world. It is not just a song that we learned in Sunday school. We were five that Jesus loves the little children. It is a reality every single day. And every day that goes by is a day that we get to remind people of the goodness of Jesus toward them. The love that he has for them. The sacrifice that he gave for them. That through faith in him, they can have life. And I know people who have given decades of their life to this task amongst the nations and only have a handful of followers of Christ to show for it. A handful. Well, to the business people in the room, you go, well, that's not, that's not a good use of time or money. Right? You go, oh, why would you? That's just inefficient. No, it's not. It's the best use of time and money that I could probably think of. Making disciples of all nations? Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. So we go after it. So what do we do in this meantime? And I would encourage you, just like that, 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 that illustration of the game, right? That you, like, is this. Live life in Christ like you know where it's headed. Live life in Christ like you know where it's headed. Because you do. And so it's really just living as if the things that are true are true. (laughs) That you have zeal to make disciples together. That you long for it. In community, reflecting Jesus as a faith family. And we have groups, we have community groups, we have discipleship groups, and we just have people who go to lunch after the service and talk. We have people who get together for coffee. We have people who are asking for prayer. We have people with specific needs that go, will you help me here? And we have people who just have the maintenance needs. Can we just talk? But with a zeal to care for those who are in our faith family. And a longing to see others come into the faith family so that they can be a part of that worshiping community as well. Live life in Christ like you know where it's headed with a zeal to make disciples together with a pursuit of the nations. There's this class I really like, if you haven't heard of it, it's called Perspectives, and it's called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And the whole kind of premise is you don't have to be amongst the nations to be concerned about the nations and participate in the gospel going to the nations. And so their big idea is that you can be a world Christian wherever you are. And there's different phrases you might hear. You pray for those amongst the nations. You give to the work of the gospel amongst the nations. You go to the nations. You welcome people from the nations. You use your home and the hospitality that you have to have people from the nations here in your house at Thanksgiving or at Christmas time. You bring them in to your home. Pray, give, go. You welcome them and you find ways to mobilize others to be aware of and interested in what God is doing amongst the nations. Missions, conferences, and prayer meetings are like the least attended things at church. Because it's kind of like, well, yeah, I, I, I know that. I'm like, do you? Do we? 
Because if we really did know that, I think we would all be there. If prayer were as significant as it is in scriptures to us, then we would all be gathering to pray. If the nations were as significant to us as we see in the scriptures, then we would all be interested in how we can be more serious about seeing the gospel brought amongst the nations. So we have a zeal to make disciples together. And then secondly, we have confidence because of the life that is to come. That we don't have to be as worried about the life that is. We don't have to be as interested or or, or worried about our stuff or our things or our paychecks or our house or our cars or measuring up because that doesn't matter. Because the Lord has said, spoken to you of your value. He has given you your value. And so we live for what will be, not for what is. We long for what will be, not for what is. We give our attention to what will be, not for what is. And we do this all because the Lord has revealed it so. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for me sometimes because you go, I I know it's true. I can read it as true. But still, in case it's not, can I live a little bit for today? Just in case. can 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 I live a little bit for today? And you look at the example of our early brothers and sisters. And you look at how they lived and what they wrote about and how they were concerned. And you go, I mean, sure, but why? Why? Jesus is worth it. We do this together, and so a longing for Genesis that we have, I have, I know you have, is that we continue to shed our sin, our idolatry, our concerns for this world, and fix our eyes more fully and faithfully on the work of the Lord Jesus and the task that is at hand, far less concerned about what might happen tomorrow and much more concerned about what happens at the end of the age. Because we know what's coming. I'm more confident about what's going to come at the end of the age than what's going to come tomorrow. Literally, very little idea. I can kind of map it out uh, to a degree, but I'm going to have 24 hours from now, I'm going to go, I didn't know that day was going to go exactly like that. But I can tell you how it's going to go when the Lord returns. And I don't know when that day is. So live in the things that are sure, not in the things that aren't. As a church, as we give ourselves to that, 